Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about a massive social transformation in Quebec during the 1960s, changing the province from one of repression and conservatism into an extremely political and academic society with significant nationalist leanings. Today, we'll look at how this transformation manifested in some of the more extreme corners of society, as the call for independence became increasingly violent. Let's begin. We're here on HI101 with Paul McGowan. Hello. And last time we just barely got started talking about the FLQ, the Quebec Liberation Front. Yeah. Front de Libération du Québec. Yeah. The Filquists, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do that with the FLQ as well. Oh, the, 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 the whole fil- like, The Filquists? Yeah. That's, it just sounds the same as Piquists. Fil- no, that's the Parti Québécois. I know, PQ. but it's, it's, they're too close. No, they're, t- they're completely different, Paul. I... Fiquists, fiquists. Yeah, I, to my, you know what, whatever. <laughs> they have very different names. I refuse to call them the filquists. I'm going to call them filquists for the rest of the, oh, no, I'm not, absolutely not. Goodness. Who are this weird, like, paramilitary Marxist separatist group who decided that resorting to violence and intimidation was a completely legitimate method of gaining independence for Quebec. Right. So... I mean, the 60s had absolutely brought about a stronger Quebec nationality or or sense of identity. And there were people like Trudeau who believed that this could very easily fit into a federalist framework and and believed strongly in that sort of association with the rest of Canada. And there were a lot of people who believed that an independent, sovereign Quebec was the only way to prevent the Quebecois from being oppressed and 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 exploited by the rest of Canada. And both kind of have a little bit of a point. The FLQ, though, were particularly radical in uh, both their, their position of what a, 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 an independent Quebec would look like and in their methods of bringing it about. So while the Parti Québécois was working to establish a provincial government that would then put into action the constitutionally valid mechanisms that might be able to extract Quebec from the Federation, the FLQ was driving to Westmount, which is like the rich Anglo neighborhood of of Montreal, and sticking improvised bombs in mailboxes to make a statement. Right. So you said they were founded in 63. 63, that's right. And were they always... I know you said they had a, a more radical vision of, of Quebec and what separation would look like, but like, were they were they always clear that like these were going to be their tactics? 
or did that evolve kind of as as they you know failed to make anything happen i mean they were they were less bomb happy in the first maybe two years of their existence by 65 like bombings were like their signature way of making a statement uh they had members who were being trained by other kind of independence or separatist military movements around the world they had uh uh some members receiving training from belgian independence fighters or uh even the plo the the palestinian liberation organization who who was like very active at this point in time in history right when they're citing the plo as the sort of organization that they want to emulate that tells you a lot about how far they're willing to go they're not showing up at City Hall to protest here. Yeah. They're trying to strong arm people into very radical political demands. They especially liked blowing up banks. They saw banks as being like symbols of Anglo oppression because there weren't a lot of French bankers at this point in time. They were almost exclusively Anglo. They also turned to bank robbing to finance their uh, their actions. Because, you know, pipe bombs don't come cheap. Jeez. <laughs> They started out with, you know, finding things like dynamite or like buying grenades and things like that. And they moved up to like building their own bombs. Yeah. And how, I mean, were they targeting lives? In general, no, but they did kill. Like by by 1965, they had killed a number of people. And it was, there's this kind of ironic thing that tends to happen with a lot of protest uh terrorist movements which is that a lot of times the people they end up hurting or killing are the people that they claim to be working on the behalf of them right if if that makes sense so they ended up killing like uh you know like a a 65 year old security guard at a mine who was who was french and you know like i I saw i saw one account of, of them killing like this this little old lady and the the comment that a journalist made was that her her name was so old and so French that her ancestors might have come over on the boat with uh, with Cartier, or sorry, with Champlain. But in any case, like it's not like they're going out of their way to like say bomb a, a, a subway terminal where they're expecting a lot of casualties. Yeah, they're very much trying to send a message that people, you know, certain people are not welcoming Quebec. That if they could hurt them, they would, or if they wanted to hurt them, they could, to make them uneasy, to make them fearful. Like this is like the purest expression of terrorism as a political tool. I think in today's world, we tend to think of terrorism as being like especially religiously motivated. And I think that's a disingenuous way of looking at it. Terrorism has been around as a political tool for a very, very long time. And there have been people bombing things for political reasons for as long as we've had bombs basically it's very much when when you when you look at incorporating violence into sort of the spectrum of political tools available to people in general people who are resorting to violence feel that they don't have any other uh more peaceful means of of expressing their political will so i mean if these people could show up at a ballot box and vote, I want Quebec to become uh, an independent Marxist paradise tomorrow, they'd do that because it's a lot easier. Like, honestly, it's, it's so much easier. Yeah. When you look at things like uh, conflicts between states, that is a sure sign that diplomacy is broken down between those states. Because if two diplomats could get together and have a fancy dinner and hash this stuff out, they would. Because that's a lot easier. It's a lot safer for everybody. It's a lot cheaper for everybody. War is expensive. 
and war is disruptive and war sucks for everybody involved even if you win terrorism is a very similar tool on a very like personal uh, level it's basically a person going to war with the state and that's not to say that some of these people aren't necessarily a little bit unhinged uh movements like that tend to uh, attract people who are unhinged but terrorism almost always has a goal besides just killing a lot of people and w- whenever an attack that gets branded as terrorism happens it's usually a good idea to try and look for what it is that this person was trying to accomplish and when you find that you're probably going to have a much clearer picture of who they were and what they were trying to achieve than looking to the normal things that get presented by history or by the news um, it very rarely has anything to do with um, the person's you know, personality and a lot more to do with their uh, political situation. So uh, all of that being said, what the FLQ is trying to achieve here isn't to kill a bunch of Anglos. There are ways to do that. They chose not to. What they're trying to do is get the Anglos out of what they see as their country. And they're trying to before they start killing a bunch of people, they're trying to scare them out first. This is a, a process of escalation. They're also doing things like uh, destroying mines because mines are owned by Anglos in general. And they feel that it is probably more painful for these people to lose their mine than it is to be killed. Right. And they might not be entirely wrong. But what they're also trying to do is re- uh, retain some semblance of legitimacy by being able to point to these events and say, look, I didn't kill anybody. Uh, I just blew up a mine. And I did it because these people are imperialists who are exploiting good, hardworking Quebecois, and I want them to stop doing that. Yeah. So there's this rationalization by the FLQ uh, for what they're doing. And yes, there are deaths. A lot of them are because somebody was where they weren't supposed to be when the bomb went off. Right. So you're probably wondering at this point, okay, well, where are the cops? And the RCMP were going hard after the FLQ. The RCMP, uh, the, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they're, they more or less fill the same role as the FBI would. They're, they're federal police officers. And something like this is kind of above like the local you know, Montreal police precinct. It's a little bit above their pay grade. Uh, when it goes from like one incident to like uh, an entire movement. And it's not as though they didn't know this was a movement. FLQ propaganda was being distributed throughout Quebec. And did did FLQ have a leader or leaders or was it more just a grassroots kind of a... That's the problem with rooting them out was they were actually very intentionally organized as like as a cell system. Right. Like they didn't have one single leader. They had independent cells. The idea being that like, yeah, okay, so the so the RCMP busted this one cell and they arrested every single person in there. And even if every single person in that cell squawked, they wouldn't be able to get anything else because they don't know anything about any of the other cells. They don't know who else is a member. There might be one of them that has some limited contact with some other organizers, but they may be uh, organizing that contact in a way that identities aren't revealed. Yeah they're being very careful, which is probably a good idea for them and which is very, very frustrating for the RCMP. So yeah, they're making arrests, but not enough, not a lot. I thought more than I usually do about this next section and whether to put it in or how to put it in. And basically I'm just going to have to bleep myself because I don't really feel like having audio of myself uh, saying part of this. But to give an idea of where the people joining the FLQ felt that they were coming from, there was a man named... uh, 
Pierre Vallier, who was a member and who was uh, arrested for manslaughter uh, because of one of these bombings. And while he was in custody, he wrote a book about the plight of the French people in Canada. And he titled this book, The White of America. And he went there. He went there. And he went there very intentionally because he, it, it, was, it was meant to be inflammatory. He understood what he was doing. The, the word had a, a very similar connotation in French as it does to English. This was uh, very intentional. And the point of his book was to draw parallels be, be, uh, between the ways that the Quebecois had been exploited in French Canada and indeed for their entire history since the conquest draw parallels between that and the way that the African slaves had been exploited in the United States. I mean, we, we can sit here and argue details all day, but like, I mean, it is a very extensive book and, and it's, it can't just be reduced to its title. It's just that it's kind of important to understand how these people are seeing themselves in this position, that they are, you know, they're not, they're not agitating for like, this isn't the asbestos strike where they're looking for the 15 cent raise. Yeah. This is them seeing the very future of their own civilization as being heavily at risk, as having been held back and exploited for centuries, and seeing the situation not necessarily getting better fast enough not to do everything in their power they can to change it. Right. Again, not to say that what he's saying here is is, is right, but you know, it, it gives a bit clearer perspective of what the FLQ is thinking about when they're shoving bombs into mailboxes in Westmount. Now, when when we're talking about this group, and I mean, I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were, you know, people who who were never found out to be members. But I mean, did they have any idea even after the fact? Was it was it dozens of people? Was it hundreds of we people? Don't really know. Not for sure. After the stuff that we're going to talk about today, uh, support for the FLQ tanked very fast. They lost popular support very very quickly. Right and. At that point, members who had not been found kind of realized that they didn't necessarily have the momentum it would take to actually incite revolution. Right. That's not the case in the mid-60s. There is a pretty substantial segment of the population who thinks that the FLQ kind of has the right idea. Like, that's great that that Trudeau is, you know, being elected to the, the position of MP and all. And it's great that he has these ideas about how we can all get along and be friends. But, you know, he's a half Anglo intellectual elite. And what does he know about what it means to work down in the asbestos mines, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, that that idea of anti-intellectualism is absolutely there. That's a force that comes into play quite often in history, actually. And it was very much present in the separatist movement. Nationalism is often sold harder to lower class people than it is to higher class people because it's often seen by the people who are doing the selling as the best way to get them on board. Right. Um, and the idea of this radical nationalism resulting in, in terrorism, it's not what everyone is looking for, not by a long shot. It, I don't think the FLQ ever really had uh, a level of support that you could call uh, even close to a majority. But there were there, there were a number of people in society that saw what they were doing as a noble cause, even though they weren't actually members. Estimates I, of how many people were members, I mean, I, I would imagine hundreds is probably around what we're talking about here. But there's really, there's absolutely no way to say. 
And when you talk about support, again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but support for the FLQ tanking. So, so you said like, so in, you know, the middle sixties, when these bombings started, they still had the yes. support Correct. of some Quebecers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Remember, this is like the middle of the, the, the quiet revolution. There are a lot of Quebecers who are very angry about the way that Anglo businesses have snapped up all the resources and paid them not enough and forced them to work in English if they wanted a real job and a lot of very valid complaints. And I mean, it's it's easy for us to sit here and, and discuss it. And it's it's hard to have lived through all that and not be furious. So yeah. I, I can see, especially when someone is going like, oh, we blew up some train tracks, like didn't hurt anybody. Like that's just the company getting what's what's owed to them. They've done the same to us 10 times over. I kind of get it. Yeah. The bombings escalated. I think we mentioned last time, 1968 alone, uh, 52 bombs were set off. Again, mostly mailbox bombs. They, they would basically drive by uh, in the middle of the night and shove a bomb into someone's mailbox. Sometimes rig it to go off when the mailbox was opened, uh, which would usually injure the person, um, but often not kill them. Sometimes just rig it to a timer, so you would be, you know, puttering around getting your morning coffee, and all of a sudden there's a massive explosion out front of your house. Right. It got so bad that people were like putting windows in their mailboxes. Like I was, I was gonna ask, yeah, how people were trying to combat that. I mean, people were living in fear, which was kind of the point, right? Yeah. It's the it's the aim of terrorism. It's right there in the name. There were a lot of people who looked at the situation and went, well, I'm, I'm an Anglo living in Quebec and I don't think this place is safe for me anymore. Because as easy as it is to split things along Quebecois and Anglo lines, there's a lot of kind of everyday Anglos who don't necessarily feel like they're the enemy of the Quebecois. They live alongside them. They might be bilingual. They probably don't feel like they're in a high enough position or a rich enough position to really be participating in the suppression of the French people. And they're kind of going, is this really worth sticking around for? Because I don't feel like I'm doing anything wrong, but I'm being perceived as the enemy. Maybe I should go. Right. And again, that's that was the point. That was what they were trying for. That was what the FLQ wanted. 1969 was a particularly bad year. February 13th, they bombed the Montreal Stock Exchange. 27 people were injured. The building was massively damaged. It was seen as possibly the biggest symbol of Anglo money and influence in Quebec. Right. There weren't a lot of Quebecois stockbrokers. So the thing that I don't think I've asked yet is were most of these bombings in Montreal as a very Anglo area. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely concentrated around uh, Montreal. It wasn't the only place, but like these people aren't looking to drive out to the Eastern townships and yeah. find some just poor working guy and blow up the, you know, the, the mailbox he's knocked together out of some spare lumber. <laughs> like, yeah. That's, that's not, that's how would that help them in any way? Right. Like it's, it's all, everything is about, symbolism everything is about the message that it's sending and that's not the message you want to send that's the person you're ostensibly trying to help no the money was in montreal the english were in montreal the bombs were in montreal in may may 5th of 1969 there were a number of members who had fled to the united states to avoid being caught 
the RCMP were on their tail. They actually hijacked a 727 in New York. What? And had it flown to Cuba because the the Cuban government was willing to shelter them. Get out. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, we don't talk about this a lot. Like, this was like a like a real actual thing for a decade in Canada. They hijacked a 727. What happened to the plane? It went to Cuba. And they didn't, and they just... They were looking for political asylum. Right. Yeah. I don't know if they let the pilot go after that. I'm honestly not sure. Wow. But they got to Cuba. I can tell you that much. Jeez. Yep. And September 28th of 1969, uh, they bombed the home of Jean Drapeau. They put a, uh, they put a bomb in the toilet, actually. Yep. Blew up his house. Wow. Like, these are big acts. Like, they escalate over the decade. Yeah. Things like Charles de Gaulle coming in and saying, Vive le Quebec libre, are not helping this stuff, necessarily. These people who are working towards federalism are exacerbating the problem. Not that it's necessarily their fault, but the fact that federalism is gaining traction is making them more desperate. The focus of the so-called legitimate uh, separatist movement under the PQ as being aiming towards sovereignty association and that not being seen as going far enough is exacerbating the problem. All of these developments that seem like good things from the outside as being, you know, incremental and democratic and all of that are just seen as frustrating for people who are radical enough to join the FLQ. On October 5th of 1970, British Trade Commissioner James Richard Cross, who is stationed at the British Embassy in Montreal, is getting ready for work. Uh, a couple of men come to the door, tell the maid that they're there uh, to do some repairs, the repairman. Uh, she lets them in, and they pull a rifle and a handgun. They go, they find Cross, drag him out of the house screaming, bundle him into a car and drive off. This isn't the first attempt at sending a message by doing something to a foreign dignitary. The FLQ has been throwing this around for a while. I mean, once you blow up the, the Montreal Stock Exchange, where do you go next? There had been plans that had been foiled to, for example, uh, kidnap uh, an American consul or even an Israeli consul at one point. The FLQ cell that did, uh, or the, the kidnapped cross was known as the Liberation Cell. Uh, you know, ask if you want, but let's, let's keep it easy. They immediately contact the authorities with a ransom note. Uh, they demand a couple of things, specifically the release of what they're calling political prisoners, which is FLQ members who have been arrested for doing actual crimes, which is not technically a political prisoner, but like, I get what they're saying. Yeah. They're not being held because they are, you know, Marxist or separatist. They're being held because they blew somebody up. Yeah. Technicalities, I guess. They also want the reading of the FLQ manifesto on air on the CBC. Right. These are pretty big demands. They also kidnapped a British dignitary. And this is bad. This is very out of control now. It's not as though the RCMP or the Canadian government have been lax up to this point. It's that, like, how do you how do you pin this one down? This is they're playing whack-a-mole with these cells. Like you you knock one out and three more spring up somewhere else, and you don't know a thing about them. Yeah. Were there I mean, were there attempts? I know that they were trying to drive Anglos out of Quebec. I mean, if you're somebody in Ontario at this point, or 
one of the Atlantic provinces. I mean, are you concerned at all? I mean, I, I'm sure you're following the situation. Is there any concern that like this might spill over, that they might target Anglos in other provinces? At the moment, it doesn't seem like that's their aim. But I can't imagine you would just go about your day not worrying somewhat that this could sometime become a thing, right? Yeah. I mean... The thing to remember about Canada is it's a little bit more complicated than just all the Francophones live in Quebec, all the Anglophones live everywhere else. There's a significant Francophone population in uh, the province of New Brunswick, just to the east of Quebec. Yeah. There's a significant uh, Francophone population in various parts of Ontario. So uh, very close to the Quebec border, uh, further north along the Quebec border, like closer to Hudson Bay, uh, down near Windsor, so close to the crossing, crossing into Detroit. There's there's quite a bit of, or, or there's quite a number of, of uh, Francophone communities. Manitoba has a significant Francophone population. Like there are Francophones throughout Canada. They're just a much smaller minority in those places. And there were actually attempts to quash fraternity with those smaller populations from some of the separatist movements. I think because they thought it would kind of confuse the matter a little bit in terms of like, how do you de- how do you declare sovereignty over Quebec and also some people in Manitoba and also right. some people in New Brunswick? Like it's, it's not as simple and they're trying to keep it as simple as possible, right? And it's not nearly as easy to incorporate someone who's not within the province as it is to drive someone out of the province that you actually have a majority in that you don't want to be there. That being said, Ottawa, the the capital of Canada, is right on the border of Quebec. And I would imagine that it is not a great time to be a Canadian politician, just in terms of like, just like quality of sleep. Yeah. You know what I mean? Police had actually busted a cell in June that they knew were going to kidnap uh, uh, an American consul and they found a ransom note like prepared ready to go that had actually these exact same demands but it took a little bit to like draw the connection there but I mean clearly there was like a disseminated plan to kidnap a foreign dignitary yeah and demand these things October 8th so three days later by the way we're going to go day by day for a little bit because things are going to unravel fast October 8th they do read the manifesto in both French and English, on basically every media outlet in Quebec. I sat down and I read the FLQ manifesto. I've read a lot of manifestos in my day. It's not a great one. <laughs> it's it's kind Is of it bad. the translation? Written. Sorry? Is it the translation? I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. I did read it in English. I can't... I, my, my French isn't good enough to pull that off, but it's just like a good manifesto outlines what the problem is like what the grievance is yeah what the perceived solution is and how you intend to go about implementing that solution and you want to lay it out in a way that like what you're saying is better than the status quo actually makes sense to the person reading it you want somebody to read this and be like yeah yeah i get what you're saying here all right right um i'm I'm riled up and also i understand i don't feel like the flq manifesto achieves that now maybe that's because it's not written for me it's it's inciting the french people of canada to rise up and i'm not and i'm also not alive in 1970 so maybe it just doesn't work as well but i'm just saying there's some other manifestos that hold up a lot better yeah 
this was controversial because I mean, we're getting into like negotiating with terrorists territory here, but the assumption was, okay, well, I mean, we present this manifesto as it is, like for what it is, we give context for it, read it out. Now we've done what they asked us to do and maybe we can get crossed back safely yeah. because we don't know where to start. We have no idea where he is. What this manifesto does include, though, that's going to be relevant is a line saying that there are more than 100,000 people organized and ready to rise against the Quebec government. Right. So that's spooky. I mean, this is an organization that they haven't been able to figure out how many people are involved. It's incredibly secretive. It is made up of just ordinary citizens. There isn't even like really like a good like class of person that tends to fit the profile of an flq activist you've got everything from like university professors to laborers to like there's like a big range so there's a thought that the number could be legitimate there's a fear that it could be legitimate okay and i mean what else do they have to go on yeah i mean it's probably bluster but now you have a situation where it's like okay well either you respond to this threat proportionally and find out that it's an overreaction or you dismiss it as being nothing and you could potentially be in a situation later where they warned you they told you specifically what was going on and you ignored that warning and it's kind of like okay well which one's worse yeah not a great situation to be in but like you kind of have to take it seriously two days later october 10th uh, another cell, uh, known as the Chenier cell, kidnaps Pierre Laporte. Pierre Laporte is Minister of Labor. He is a liberal, and he is actually Vice Premier. So he's a pretty important guy in the uh, in the government. Basically, he's out on the front lawn playing football with his nephew. He is guardian of his brother's kids. Uh, he, he's lost two brothers, and, and he has his own kids, plus he's guardian of, of his uh, nephew and nieces. He's just out thrown around a football and they come up and they throw him in a car and drive him off this is like we're, we're at like full-blown crisis time like this was a problem before now it's kind of like okay well now how many are gonna go down like what's what's actually gonna happen here because two is a little early to call it a pattern but but right on the heels of each other too right within five days is he sorry is he the provincial or the federal labor minister provincial okay the next day, a letter is sent from Laporte to the premier. Uh, it's, 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 by the way, the premier changed in, uh, in May of 1970. It's uh, Robert Bourassa. And he's asking Bourassa to call off the search. He basically says, like, if you keep looking for me, if you find this cell, they will kill me. Just give them what they want or I'm dead. Like, you, you have to decide, like, whether or not I'm going to die. And the, the thing that you do to help me live is to just don't let the cops come after me. Just let them hold me. They're treating me fine. I'll be okay. But like, I have like a dozen people that depend on me and I can't let them down. Yeah. Just leave me alone. Just don't look for me. This is actually read out on the news as well. You can find CBC archive footage of all of this stuff. I don't think I've ever actually mentioned, I'm talking about the CBC. That's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. It's our, our public broadcaster in Canada. And at this point in history has like far more reach uh, than basically any other media outlet in Canada. They were created with a mandate to reach as many Canadians as possible. And so getting this coverage on CBC is uh, like a very effective method of disseminating information. 
Um, but yeah, the being a public broadcaster, they also make all of this information available, uh, at least to Canadians. I, I don't know if that stuff's available from from outside of Canada, but I was watching uh, an anchor read out uh, Laporte's uh, letter uh, just the other day, and it's it's creepy. It's yeah. like very creepy. The next day, the twelfth, uh, the army begins patrolling federal buildings, uh, specifically in Ottawa, but also in Montreal. They have federal jurisdiction to police federal buildings, and this is a, a matter of national security now. So, you know, on one hand, it's like, okay, well, maybe this is proportional. We should be giving our, our government officials more protection. On the other hand, there are tanks on the steps of Parliament. And, like, people don't like that. Yeah. For, like, a very good reason. It's not, it, like, it's very unsettling, right? Negotiations begin the same day for... Cross's release. The FLQ basically hires a lawyer to negotiate on their behalf. So that's got to be a weird position to be in, huh? Yeah. Yeah, um, as that lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what was going through his head on taking that job. I'm, I'm sure he was hoping to do a little bit of good, but who knows? I don't know anything about the man. Yeah. The next day, uh, another very famous Trudeau media exposure happens, which is a, a, an interview with a, a journalist... Uh, named Tim Ralph, who basically ambushes Trudeau going into the Parliament buildings. And I don't know if you've ever sat down and watched this whole interview. It's very good. Trudeau's a bright guy. He's very, very quick. He also does not have a lot of patience because he is kind of in the middle of a national crisis. And Ralph is very, very hostile as, a, as an interviewer. And basically asks Trudeau, why should you get more protection than me and my family just because you're prime minister? Which Trudeau basically responds with like, are you an idiot? <laughs> do you not do you not see how that might be a little bit different? Um, but the the most famous part of this interview is the interviewer basically says, "Well, like you've got you've got all these tanks and all these soldiers and all of this stuff, and you're just responding to like one little kidnapping kind of thing. Um, like, how far are you going to go against these people? Like, how like what like what to what lengths are you willing to go?" and Trudeau just looks at him and he responds, just watch me. It's very good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 out of a movie, basically. You'd think it was rehearsed. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, it's very it's very worth looking up. I, I might even stick a couple links into some of these. It's nice doing more recent stuff where there is this stuff on like on record. Oh, like you sure. can go yeah. and look because it really humanizes a lot of what's going on. Like you can just see how tired Trudeau is during this interview. He's exhausted. He is irritated by this journalist and, and he just like does not have time for all of this. He tries really hard to answer all the questions, but he just does not want to be there. And it is iconic, I think is the word I'm looking for. The 14th, René Levesque and other separatist leaders start calling for negotiations with the FLQ. They're like, why don't you just negotiate the release of these prisoners? We'll make this whole thing go away. Um, which, I mean, they've already started doing, but they're like really pushing to just like accept all demands. Just accept all the demands. Make this go away. But on the 15th, the negotiations fall through. They can't come to an agreement. And as soon as they fall through, Bourassa requests army support for the civil power. So basically he's saying, I want the army there to back up the cops if they need the help. So this isn't martial law. That's very like critical to understand about what's going on here. He's asking for there to be military support because he has a paramilitary organization in his province who is kidnapping government officials and setting off bombs and killing people. So he's just looking for extra support here. Yeah. Um, this is backed up by 
Drapeau, who's also looking for help. And so they do mobilize the, the military uh, further than just the, the federal buildings. All three opposition governments are in favor of this increase in military presence. Um, in, in Quebec, by the way, sorry, the, the, the Quebec governments. And that includes the, the PQ, like the, the separatist um, party. That same day, though, just to like give you a little bit of context on like where everybody is, there was also like a 3,000-person pro-FLQ rally in Montreal. Wow. Mainly made up of students from the University of Montreal. But this is still like a thing in Montreal. This is still a thing in Quebec. People are for what's happening with the FLQ. That's, I mean, for a group that has now killed people and kidnapped two others, that seems like a like a fairly big show of support. I agree. I there's There's sections of the October crisis that I look back at and I barely recognize the country I live in. It's really weird. Yeah. And, and again, like understanding that history of Quebec and its relationship to Anglo-Canada, you can, you can sort of bring yourself to a spot where like, at least intellectually you understand the position, but like, that's, that's not the same as like, I, I don't get it. People are dying. Like what's, what's good about this? Like, why can't we work on the, the processes that are actually going forward under people like Levesque? But in any case, that it, it doesn't change anything that happened. There were rallies, 3000 people in one spot. And that was just one of the rallies. The next day, Bulasov still feels like he's in over his head and requests emergency powers be granted. And Trudeau does one of the most controversial things he'll do in his entire political career, which is uh, put into place the War Measures Act. The War Measures Act was a piece of legislation that was introduced during the First World War, basically saying that during times of crisis, certain guarantees of democratic society don't necessarily apply when they work contradictory to the interests of national security. The main thing that we're going to be looking at under the War Measures Act is the suspension of habeas corpus, which is a really basic legal tenet that basically says you need to be charged with a crime in order to be held uh, by the authorities. Another right that's taken away is um, the requirement of a warrant to perform search and seizure. So in other words, a prosecutor no longer needs to go to a judge, plead their case as to why search is uh, justified, and have police show up with that warrant to conduct a search of a premises or of uh, a person. They can just do that at their own discretion. The War Measures Act was only ever used three times in Canadian history. One was during the First World War, one was during the Second World War, and one was during the October Crisis. So in terms of measuring the severity of the situation that's a bit of a barometer yeah almost immediately police start searching houses and arresting people that they've kind of suspected had flq ties but haven't had enough evidence to actually do anything about and that's the entire intention behind putting the war measures act in place this is kind of what trudeau was referring to when he said just watch me He's willing to go a very long way to stop these people. This isn't martial law because there is still a separation between the military and the judiciary branch, but it gets darn close. Under these rules, somebody can be uh, arrested and held without being charged for anything for seven days. They do not have the right to an attorney. They do not have a right to any communication with the outside uh, world. 
At the discretion of an attorney general, that can be extended to 21 days without any charges. Bit spooky. Some of the people that are arrested under the War Measures Act don't even necessarily have strong reasons to suspect that they're tied to the FLQ, but might instead be people who were maybe a little bit of trouble for the Montreal police. Right. Maybe uh, extremely outspoken uh, actors or artists tended to end up in jail. The next day, Laporte is killed. He was strangled, stuffed in the trunk of a car, and left near an airport. Basically, they phoned the cops and told them where to find the body. It would come out later that he was killed during a struggle. It was an accident. That information came out about seven years ago. So it was, it was kept off the public record. Right. The, uh, the cell that was holding him, uh, after accidentally killing their only valuable hostage, decided to try and use it to their, to their advantage and spun it to the cops as, listen, do what we say or we're willing to kill we're willing to kill our hostages like we're not messing around yeah when they're are they still holding james cross at this point yes and keep in mind they are two completely separate cells they don't necessarily like we, we don't have the impression that there's a lot of communication between the two yeah but they kind of decided to throw the liberation cell a bone on that one because it was all they had left like what, what else do they have a, a dead body they murdered someone that's it yeah they have no leverage so they you know handed off that leverage to their fellow cell the same day the liberation cell who still has james cross makes new demands they announce that cross will not be killed they won't kill him but what they want in addition to the release of those political prisoners is they want the flq manifesto published and distributed which is like okay guys you already had your time on the cbc like calm down yeah it's not that good <laughs> They want $500,000 in gold. They want an airplane to take them to either Algeria or Cuba, both of which they feel kind of an affinity to uh, in having sort of fought against a, an oppressive regime. Uh, Algeria has just gone through a, a series of wars with France. Yeah, like everyone's kind of looking at this going like, no, we, we can't do that, but we got to get this guy back. So how are we going to handle this? They also want the name of an informant who ratted on another cell. Right. So yeah, that's that's pretty much a death sentence right there. Meanwhile, and like maybe this is the case with all terrorist organizations, but I, I feel like your your end goal of you know Quebec sovereignty just seems like so far away from where you are as the FLQ right now. They've lost control of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no there's no question about that. On November six, the police raid the Chenier cell, and uh, a man named Bernard Lorty is arrested and charged with Laporte's murder. But there's three other people that managed to get away. So they, there's a massive manhunt on. December 4th, after 59 days in captivity, Cross is finally released. They managed to come to an agreement uh, on which terms would be honored and which ones would not. And here's what they decided to do. They agreed that the five kidnappers would be flown to, to Cuba on a Canadian forces plane after confirming with Castro that he would indeed take these people in uh, and also making it very clear that this was exile for life. They, they would be flown there and that was it. They'd be allowed to go and James Cross would go free. Right. They wouldn't get the money. No one else would be released. Nothing's getting published. And no, you can't know who that informant was. They took the deal. 
and a Canadian Armed Forces plane flew these five people to Cuba and left them there. All five would eventually make them their way back to Canada in a number of years. All would be arrested on their arrival and serve time for the kidnapping. But that was essentially the end of the crisis. Cross was about 20 pounds down, but otherwise unharmed. And in fact, noted that his kidnappers were relatively civil considering all the uh, all the circumstances. Yeah. As kidnappings go, it wasn't so bad, which I guess is a pretty relative thing. But I mean, they hadn't physically harmed him. He was okay. So we're at the end of October 1970. We're actually into December, but yeah. Into December. Yeah. So how, I mean, how long after that did the bombings continue? Or or did this, did Not. the end of the hostage crisis just kind of... Not long. Yeah, it uh, it really killed the momentum on the FLQ. End of December, the final three that had gotten away from the Shinye cell were found basically in a hole on a farm outside of Montreal. All three were arrested with uh, and, and charged with, with murder, and they went to jail. So in this time, though, I mean, they arrested hundreds of people who are suspected FLQ members. They got a bunch of them, and... What they had done with the situation with the uh, the uh, liberation cell was, I mean, yeah, they negotiated with terrorists. Yeah, they gave them what they wanted, kind of. But they only gave them the demands that actually made them look pretty bad. Yeah. They didn't end up sticking for their uh, sticking to their cause. They ended up running away. They kidnapped a guy, made a bunch of bluster, and then ran away to Cuba. And what kind of Quebecois nationalist is that? Well, it sounds like... Like, as a group, they had these two very brazen and very, you know, cells that, that had two successful kidnapping attempts, and that was kind of, like, that was it. I don't think that's inaccurate. And then, yeah, I can see how, like, how, yeah, I mean, just, just you, you, you pull off these kidnappings, and then you basically run away with your tail between your legs, and I can see how, like, that would, yeah, kind of lead that effort to fizzle out. Who looks at that and goes, yeah, those FLQ guys, they've got their heads on straight. Yeah, yeah. They were in a strong position. Maybe not the strongest they could have been in, but that was that was zero hour right there. That was make or break. Yeah. They choked. So when you say it came out seven years ago that Laporte was strangled mm -hmm. in a struggle as opposed to like just mercilessly mm -hmm. killed, how did they like how did they finally find that out? I think the police records were sealed for 40 years. Right. Um, I, I believe that was the circumstances there. Um, that tends to happen with things like this, especially if people are still alive. Yeah. Uh, which many of these people actually are. But yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, public sentiment changes almost almost immediately against the FLQ, and it's one thing to have this like romanticized like freedom fighter idea of yourself. It's another to watch these guys do what they did. And then go like, yeah, I'm part of the same group. Yeah. It's also really hard to keep going where you see two people kidnapped, two people kidnapped, and have the War Measures Act enacted. Tommy Douglas, leader of the New Democratic Party, and another political titan in Canada, described what Trudeau did as cracking a peanut with a sledgehammer. And I'm not sure he's necessarily wrong. But he does have the benefit of hindsight. And I don't know. Maybe if you don't want any other peanuts around, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you can't just... I don't know if you can just 
can you just chalk it up to like, well, the 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 two cells who who kidnapped people kind of played their hand wrong? I mean, I feel like it's that, but then also maybe there's, I, I think fear does come into it. Of course it does. This is a terrorist organization. It's all about fear. But I mean, like like fear, fear on on the part of, of FLQ members that like yes. Oh man, this is this is serious. Well, I mean, part of the you know another another major part of being a terrorist organization is the mystique. Yeah, it's the image that you're projecting, not necessarily the reality of your situation. Yeah. And if it turns out that the reality of your situation is that you're a bunch of wusses, that's not so threatening. Yeah. I mean, to to be fair, not not that I'm planning on kidnapping anybody, but I don't know if I could negotiate any better than that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I don't feel yeah. like that's I don't feel like that's just like an innate skill. I don't feel like people are just good at it. But the point stands that they didn't plan well enough to have something in place. They didn't have next steps figured out. There's a lot of people who have suggested that these were essentially rogue FLQ cells. That maybe there was a bigger plan and that these guys botched it by going too fast. Hmm. They were the Leroy Jenkins (laughs) of the FLQ. Yeah. I think that's a great place to stop and take a bit of a break and just reflect on the events of October of 1970. Uh, And when we come back, we'll talk about the fallout of all of this. We're back on HI 101 here with Paul McGowan. We're back. And that that was the October crisis. That that was it. We just ran through it. Yeah, it was... So I came into this thinking that I was maybe forgetting parts of it. No, it was the... it's just really anticlimactic. I mean, a little bit. It's it's sort of the climax of like 10 years of, you know, pent up aggression and, and terrorist activity and stuff. But like the, the crisis itself is, yeah, it's it's a little bit on the minor side. Yeah. Well, like right up until like the War Measures Act and then like Laporte dying, it's, it's really gripping. Mm-hmm. And then like... The, the other guys who kidnapped Cross get flown to Cuba, and then it's like, eh, yeah, that's it. A little bit. I, I mean, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I, I don't want to give anybody more credit than they deserve, but it's a really good example of how to defuse a situation like that. And it turns out that part of the way that you defuse a situation like that is just go full-blown response. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, people were really in favor of the response that was put in place. They did uh, actually Gallup polls of people's opinions on the use of the War Measures Act in December because, you know, it's useful it's to, to have. It's the kind of thing that Gallup really likes. And it turned out that 89% of English-speaking Canadians were in favor of using the War Measures Act and 86% of French-speaking Canadians. I didn't think it would be that high. Yeah, only 8% and 9% respectively opposed it with the, the difference being undecided. Yeah. That's a really low opposition rate, especially for something as controversial as that. Yeah. On December 23rd, Trudeau announced that uh, all troops would be withdrawn by January 5th. So it was, you know, ended pretty quickly uh, after after things wound down. It was just before uh, the rest of the Chenier cell was arrested, but, you know, after after the liberation cell was uh, flown to Cuba. Um, so we don't have like a like a Caesar situation on our hands here. Yeah, a little anticlimactic, climactic, I suppose. But I mean, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of okay with that. Oh yeah, no, no, I'm definitely okay with it. It's just I mean, like as a movie, it wouldn't work. You know, there have been a number of movies made of it. 
but like CBC movies or like good movies? <laughs> both. Um, <laughs> okay. Both, yeah. And I mean, some of it has, uh, some of them have been by Quebecois movie makers. So, mm. you know, there's there's a lot of different viewpoints you can get on this whole thing because it's not just about the crisis itself, right? I mean, we didn't even get to the crisis until the second part of this story. Yeah. It's about this decision during the 1960s of who Quebec is and who Quebec will be. And their role in it is an experiment. Is armed rebellion a viable option for Quebec's best future? And the answer is no. Or at least that seemed to be the consensus in, you know, 1971. Maybe if things had gone well, the answer would be different. But as we've observed a number of times, these guys kind of flubbed it. Yeah. That's one of the advantages of strong leadership over a cell situation is having a united vision. And cells work great for resistance, but they don't work that well for change. Despite the public's approval of the War Measures Act, there were a number of politicians that opposed it. I think I already mentioned Tommy Douglas, um, René Lévesque, even though he like approved it, basically, when it, when it first came out, afterwards said that the whole thing was this massive violation of the presumption of innocence, that uh, there was no evidence of it being anything more than a handful of people and that it was a complete overreaction to the situation. Of the perspectives I've heard on the use of the War Measures Act, I feel like this is the least fair of them because, I mean, how are they supposed to know? They were told that there were 100,000. Right. Well, and I mean, you said you said there were what? I mean, in, in 68, what, like 50 bombings? And then in 69, it was over 100. Uh, no, the, 69, it wasn't nearly as many as 68, but still, it was one a, it was one a week for 1968. Right, um, Which, it, it lowered down in, in 1969, but they were more targeted and more high profile was the difference there. Right. And I, I mean, that number to me, I mean, would suggest more than a handful of people. Sure. Absolutely. That's and, and as the profiles got more and more important, why wouldn't you expect a level of escalation there? Yeah. Like, I don't know, like if, if, if somebody punches you once, then he punches you twice and then he says, I'm going to punch you three times. Like, I'm going to expect that. Yeah. And then if you tell mom and he says, what, I just said it, I wasn't going to do it. Like, you know, that's no, that's, that's a completely reasonable thing to anticipate. The thing that still baffles me, sorry to go back to it, is the, the hijacking of the 727. Why? To get themselves to Cuba. Buy a plane ticket. No, the, the United States had broken off diplomatic relations with Cuba at that point in time. Right. But if these were guys were Canadian, it just seems like it. No, they were in New York when they hijacked it. They had, they had fled from Canada to the United States. They hijacked the plane in New right, York. Right, right, okay. And forced it to fly them to Cuba. So yes, you could get a flight from Canada to Cuba at this point in time. I believe at least. I, I'm not sure if there were sanctions for uh, a short period of time in the 60s. But you could not get a plane from the United States to Cuba uh, after 62, I'm going to say. Yeah. Or something like that. And maybe this is just, I guess, you know, living post 9-11. I'm thinking, if you hijack a plane, like... I just, you know, my, my brain goes like, oh my goodness, they're going to do something awful with it. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, they just took that's, us to Cuba. No, everyone, everyone our age and younger is is obviously going to have that exact same yeah. reaction to the idea. No, plane hijackings were relatively common in the 70s. Yeah. But you'd like hold it on the tarmac, right? And like... Yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes hijack it in the, pl- in the air and force it to take you somewhere else. Uh, you know, you got your DB Cooper and whatnot. 
Yeah. But I, I, I understand what you're saying. No, they were just looking for a ride. That's that's all. In total, 497 people were arrested during the uh, suspended rights of the War Measures Act. Over 3,000 searches were conducted. So if they made use of it. Yeah. Now, How many were charged of, of the 497? 62. And of those, 32 were charged with things that were bad enough that they weren't granted bail. Right. That being said, in uh, retrospect, in, in, in analysis of the situation, none of the people who were arrested couldn't have been... Or, or hmm, how, to, how to phrase this? Basically, everyone who was arrested probably would have been valid candidates for issuing a search warrant. So, so you're so the idea being that like it wasn't used in a total with like reckless abandon. No, it was. Oh, okay. My point being that it didn't necessarily help them catch anyone that they couldn't have caught oh, okay. without. Now, I will say that this is a point of argument. There are a lot of people who will say, well, you know, th this person you probably couldn't have caught without it. And then there is also the very valid argument that, well, how could you have known that without acting on the information that you had? You didn't know that you wouldn't catch anybody very important. Yeah, it's, it's a very like Jack Bauer argument. It's like, well, how was I supposed to know he wouldn't talk if I didn't shoot him in the kneecap first? <laughs> yeah. And it's really easy to talk about things like habeas corpus and and all of that stuff when you're not in the middle of a national crisis and like not saying that I'm for the suspension of basic rights, but at the same time, what if it had helped or more specifically, what if taking these steps had been able to save Laporte's life or get crossed back sooner or defuse a potential much greater threat and they didn't take them, mm -hmm. right? Like you can't know that in the moment. If you had that information, it wouldn't be a debate as to whether or not to put these things in place. Yeah. And like, I don't know, we can sit here and argue about what somebody should have done with all this other knowledge that they just didn't have in the moment. And it's, I don't know, it always seems kind of disingenuous to me. If you want to have an argument about whether it was the best thing to do with the information you had at the time, that's a different thing. That's absolutely always up for debate. But this whole, like, given what we know afterwards, was this the right thing to do? Yeah, I don't know. Some of the people that were arrested were not treated terribly well, had completely valid reasons to complain about their experience. Most, given the fact that they were being arrested without any warrant or any charges being laid, said that they were actually okay. Like, it wasn't so bad. Again, we're talking like really like relative terms here, but a lot of reports were kind of like, yeah, actually the police were really respectful and the, the interrogation was like fairly straightforward and like they didn't treat me badly and I was you know uh, as soon as they realized they didn't have anything on me I was let go etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know again we're talking about a super relative thing but in terms of you know enacting pseudo martial law and arresting people without cause they didn't uh, they didn't necessarily abuse that power any further than it was granted by the acts uh, put in place by the by the government right so I mean that is something I don't know Maybe I'm just making up excuses for what happened. I'm not sure. Well, I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's a question that you that you have to consider. And I mean, you have to, I, I think it's worth looking at whether or not, you know, when you did suspend, you know, your, your, your basic civil rights, whether or not how far they were abused. Yeah. I mean, and you can't really answer it definitively, but I think that's worth 
looking at it, it is worth knowing i mean it's not it's not necessarily an experiment that you want to perform but if it needs to be performed i mean having that that knowledge isn't the worst thing you're right yeah but no it seems that they basically used the powers that were given to them and did not push them any further which is surprising in the best kind of way yeah if you know what i mean the war measures act was actually replaced in 1988 it's uh something called the emergencies act now it's got a lot more uh specific language in there about just clarifying the scope of powers if it ever is put in place requiring that it be you know there there are certain charter rights that are inviolable even under the emergencies act things like that um so there won't ever be another war war measures act put in place it'll always be just those three and the experience under the october crisis will have shaped that legislation pretty significantly In 1971, something that Trudeau had been working on for a while was finally enacted, known as the Multicultural Policy, and it just kind of further expanded what we talked about with the Official Languages Act, recognizing uh, the place of Quebec in a a multicultural society, again to the consternation of a lot of his critics and to uh, applause from a lot of other segments of Canadian uh, society. The fact that the the FLQ had lost so much respect out of this whole process really turned a lot of people towards the Parti Québécois as the most, like the best bet in terms of sovereignty. They looked at what they had been working on and said, okay, well, they've been trying to separate from Canada for a while now, and nobody's kicked down their doors and arrested them. In fact, for the most part, members of the PQ were not really targeted at all under the War Measures Act. I mean, there was the odd exception, don't get me wrong, but it's not as though they went and rounded up every PQ member, yeah. which is, again, a pretty good indication of the fact that the powers weren't abused that much further than they were intended. Is it is it fair to say that the fact that, I mean, I, I kind of almost thought you were going to tell me that that after the FLQ, a whole bunch of people were turned off from separatism until later on but so is it fair to say that tells you how much how how big an issue quebec sovereignty is to some people that that they jumped you know from a terrorist organization to just another political party that 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 had similar you know kind of similar aims Mm -hmm. i don't know exactly when in 1963 the the flq was founded but i mean like between 60 and 63 is when you've got like the Bay of Pigs and you've got the Cuban Missile Crisis and like a lot of the stuff about like Marxist groups gets a lot more real, right? And there's a little bit more sympathy towards Marxist ideas in a society like Quebec where it's, it's you know, it's an oppressed society or, uh, you know, at the very least, the people genuinely see themselves that way. And so there's a bit more tolerance for that. But like by the time you get to like 1970 and you see some of the stuff that's gone down, for example, in South America with various Marxist groups and just the absolute just destruction that's rained on them as soon as every, anyone so much as declares themselves socialist, let alone communist. I think there's a lot more hesitation to like take up with like a radical Marxist group. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have a, a, a group working within the system, specifically the PQ, who seems to be offering a level of autonomy that even if it's not necessarily what they want as the end game, the rose colored glasses have come off in terms of like armed uprising and glorious revolution. Yeah. And I think that what happens like in a very, in a potentially like, dismissive way of putting it i think it grew up a little bit 
the October crisis made that separatist movement very, very real for people for whom before that it was largely intellectual. Right. And I think they realized that they didn't necessarily want to deal with the Canadian Armed Forces. They didn't necessarily want to deal with martial law. This is kind of what we were talking about with terrorism, right? It's 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 this it's this tool of of desperation, of last resort. And more and more people were realizing that they actually weren't out of options just yet. Maybe, maybe we can try these other safer options first. Yeah. Okay. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, I I don't know. It's when it comes to like something in the vein of like public sentiment towards a terrorist group, it's it's not always the easiest thing to kind of untangle, but I think that would be the most accurate way of of categorizing that that shift yeah fair enough the pq had always promised that a referendum on separation would be part of their platform and that the first time they gained a majority in uh the assemblée nationale that they would push for a reform or for a referendum on separation and in 1976 the pq won a majority making Levesque uh premier of Quebec. He immediately went to work on figuring out just how to make that referendum happen because he was committed to having that happen within his first term. 1977, they put in place something uh, known as the Charter of the French Language, also known as Bill 101. I'm not sure if you've come across that one in particular, but you'll recognize some of the details, I'm sure. This is the one where uh, it made French the official language of Quebec and put a number of restrictions on signage, both for official government purposes and for commercial uh, purposes, so that it gets to the point where like stores aren't supposed to have English signage on the outside of them and could potentially face fines if they don't comply with this act. Right. It's widely derided in English Canada. Yeah, the idea of the language police going around and getting upset because there's an English word on your on your sign is... You know, one thing to people who read English just fine. It's another to people who genuinely see this as an act of protectionism for your culture. And they are building towards, in their minds, a sovereign nation. They see that as a major step of sovereignty is to distinguish their nationhood from the rest of Canada. And they're using language to do that. Another, and in my opinion, slightly more insidious consequence of Bill 101 is that it mandates that children must be educated in French unless they have, I believe it's at least one grandparent who was educated in English in the province. Right. That, that means that anyone who is French must continue taking French. Anyone who is English may eventually time out on whether or not they're allowed to continue English education. And any allophones, any, any immigrants who speak anything other than French must send their children to French school. This is a way of trying to protect and maintain the language, but is also a little bit restrictive in terms of parents' choice of how they want their children to be educated in a, in a bilingual country. Right. Um, anyways, th- there's there's lots of you know uh, current debate over the language laws in Quebec, and I don't. But so really... when it when it says that your children must be educated in French yep. unless they have at least one English grandparent, I mean those kids, so they cannot take english classes or they just can't do like an english immersion kind of a school they their their primary language of education must be french they must attend french schools yeah some of them uh, offer english classes but that but they they can't be 
taking, for example, math in English. So yeah, I, I suppose framing it as as no English immersion allowed would be would be reasonable. But I, I think a better comparison is the difference between the French school boards and English school boards in Ontario, where they completely overlap. Right. It would be the same as basically outlawing every French school board in Ontario. You can still get some French education, but it won't be the primary language of your education. Right, right. Okay. It's it's pretty complete. And, you know, like, like I said, there's there's plenty of current debate about that. We don't need to get into any of that stuff. But it's, it's one of the more commonly uh, uh, objected to aspects of this bill. And then in 1980, they do have a referendum on whether or not uh, Quebec should separate. And it does not pass. It's about 60% say that they would rather remain a part of Canada to 40% saying they would like to separate. A uh, major issue is the uh, referendum question. Have you ever read this? Like way, way back. Yeah. Here's the referendum question on uh, separation from 1980. The government of Quebec has made public its proposal to negotiate a new agreement with the rest of Canada based on the equality of nations. This agreement would enable Quebec to acquire the exclusive power to make its laws, levy its taxes, and establish relations abroad, in other words, sovereignty, and at the same time to maintain with Canada an economic association including a common currency. Any change in political status resulting from these negotiations will only be implemented with popular approval through another referendum. On these terms, do you give the government of Quebec the mandate to negotiate the proposed agreement between Quebec and Canada. How would you vote? Yes I or no? Mean, yes or no? If I'm a Quebecer? No. Uh, my question was more, did you understand that question well enough well, I mean, to know which one to vote for? It's like it's... I I guess it's clear enough. It is. Because I, I mean, mean, I think like in like a referendum kind of a situation, especially if you're talking about sovereignty, you're, you're thinking like, yes, is the... Yeah. Sure. Um, I, I think it gets lambasted a little bit more than it deserves. The The question is there. There was an issue of how much the average citizen actually paid attention to the, the question itself and how much they paid attention to the campaigning of each side. Um, yeah. And it got worse in the 95 election uh, or sorry, the 95 referendum. But yeah, um, I mean, it's not like they asked they asked like don't don't you not want to be part of canada anymore <laughs> and that's a joke that happened a lot around these referendums because because it is a little bit convoluted i mean what they're trying to do is be as clear as possible but it, it it's a little bit wordy yeah it's a little bit wordy with the referendum defeated um trudeau moved ahead on an initi- an initiative that he'd been working on for the majority of his career as uh, as uh, as prime minister specifically repatriating the constitution up until uh, this act goes through, technically any changes to the Canadian constitution had to be made by the British Parliament. I don't know. We're doing this whole Canada 150 thing this year, right? The more I read about Canadian history, the more arbitrary Confederation in 1867 seems as like a good start year for Canada. Right. There's a lot of stuff that happened before and there's a lot of stuff that happened after that would also make very good markers. Yeah. For example, in 1931... Uh, the Statute of Westminster finally allowed complete autonomy of the Canadian Parliament. Before that, any appeals claims could actually be escalated beyond the Canadian Supreme Court to the British Parliament. That was just a, a, a course of action you had available to you up until 1931, which does not sound terribly uh, independent to me. No. And then until 1982, we couldn't change our own constitution uh, without British assent. Again, it feels like a the kind of thing that a sovereign nation should have control over. Yeah. In any case, I, I digress a little bit, but 
I don't know, maybe we should be celebrating like Canada 34 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like getting to go to the mall with your friends when you're in like whatever grade seven. It's like you have to, you know, call your parents when you leave and then call your parents when you get to the mall and then call your parents when you leave the mall. Like, that's a pretty good analogy. <laughs> and then you move out, but they're still paying your phone bill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Trudeau was trying to repatriate the Constitution. And you know what? It was it was very much seen as a strong assertion of his view of federalism, which we talked about a little bit more earlier on in the episode. Um, this this idea that Quebec doesn't need to be independent to be its own society its own state or or its own nation rather it can do that within the framework of federal uh, federalism just as effectively but actually be more strong and and better placed on the world stage if it does it within the context of a larger state yeah yeah federalism is an interesting concept and it's one that i, I don't know it, it almost runs parallel to nation states in a certain in a certain sense and after so many years of pushing nation state I, I i i don't know what place it has in that world but um we're trying to make a go of it that's for sure yeah i mean trudeau was considered a traitor by a lot of quebecois he saw they, they saw any federalists especially any any francophone federalists as being traitors to quebec if it was some other you know anglo prime minister that was trying to repatriate the constitution it's kind of like well okay it's just another anglo power grab but this is one of their own and they had issues with that Convention, which is a very like real thing in constitutional law. Convention states that in order to make changes to the constitution, the federal government would have to consult with all of the provinces. The Supreme Court determined that this was true and that something called a general consensus would need to be reached. Uh, sorry, a general agreement, not a general consensus. And that's like a very, that's a very vague term. General agreement, like is that... Is that a majority? Oh, so they didn't. That, they didn't define it. No, the no courts very rarely explicitly define things like that. But no, it, it was not specified how exactly that was to be to be gone about. Trudeau gained signatures from the premiers of nine of the ten provinces. He did not get a signature from René Levesque. During the conferences, Levesque had been, I suppose, belligerent would be not completely uh, unfair. He had a very different vision of Canada. Uh, he was worried that the Constitution was not giving Quebec a special enough place in the order of things. Um, he felt that as one of the two founding nations of Canada, that Quebec should be afforded a little bit more power under the Canadian Constitution. He also wanted to make sure that it was built in such a way that if someday he did manage to get the votes for it, that Quebec would be able to separate. These weren't things that any of the other premiers were interested in. In fact, most of them were explicitly against it. One day they kind of broke for for the day. And then Trudeau recalled basically everyone but Levesque. And while Levesque was up in his room, they all signed it. He didn't believe that Levesque would ever come around. He also believed that the other nine would be a strong enough mandate to pass the Constitution Act. Signed in 1982 by Queen Elizabeth. And Quebec has still never to this day signed the Canadian Constitution. There were uh, there were attempts in uh, the 80s uh, to get them on board to make constitutional changes that they'd be happy with, the Meech Lake Accord, the Charlottetown Accord, neither of which worked out. In fact, they went so badly that there was a second referendum in 95. 
But the Supreme Court also determined that Quebec never needed to. That was a convention, but it wasn't actually law. And just because Quebec had always been needed to pass things before didn't mean that the signatures from all the other premiers weren't enough to pass this act. Quebec has come a really long way in our story. In some senses, they're still kind of where they were. They're still kind of getting hammered a little bit. And it's because they want different things out of Canada than the rest of Canada does. And that's a really hard thing to work around. In fact, it's been, I would say, the central conflict of Canadian history. We're going to end with that 1980 referendum, I think, because it was an extension of the same thrust towards sovereignty that the FLQ crisis was based on. It was the legitimate, let's do this by the book, political version of kidnapping foreign ministers and setting off bombs. But the two had the same goal in mind, an independent Quebec. I could keep going on on more modern Quebec all day. It was uh, it was something that I focused on in in political science quite a bit actually, because it's fascinating and it's contrary and it's 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 so important to Canada. Maybe even more important than a lot of Canadians really want to admit to themselves when they're not faced with it on an ongoing basis. But as much as Quebec grew and defined itself and caught up with the rest of Canada, there's still conflict there under the surface. So. The people who had supported the FLQ may have found some solace in the fact that the Parti Québécois was trying to do it by the book, but they didn't find resolution. And that's still there, and we just kind of have to deal with that as a nation. So to close the book on the FLQ, mm-hmm. so to speak, I mean, was there ever, you know, was there ever like a, like a, like a week in the 80s where like mailbox bombs reappeared, like there was never any other kind of a flare-up of that? It just seems like such a, such a tiny, compacted event, and I yeah, I so mean, it's amazing had, that it went away. They they had busted a bunch of cells due to those arrests, and by 1971, they kind of just stopped finding active cells, and people stopped setting bombs. And as far as the authorities were concerned, either they had gotten everybody, or there were a lot of people who were never caught but decided to cease acting in uh, the capacity of the FLQ, both of which they were kind of okay with because the bombs had stopped. And, uh, you know, it's it's the most Canadian thing I can think of to have a referendum on separation. I mean, that's practically how Confederation took place in the first place in 1867. It was, you know, the, the Charlottetown Conference and, you know, a whole bunch of whole bunch of old white rail magnets got together and decided to ask the queen very nicely if they could have their own country, please. (laughs) And she said, yeah. And that's how Canada came about. I mean, it's a much more interesting story than that, but I I mean, that's, that's, I I think quintessentially Canadian is this, let's, let's go through the proper channels. Let's do this by the book. Let's, uh, let's just make this work. And, you know, in, in a certain way, because of that, as as much as I want Canada to stay together, I'm 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 very strongly against separatism. It's almost too bad it didn't work out because like they did it the right way, they did it the Canadian way, and they still just didn't get what they wanted, and that kind of sucks. Yeah. Again, I, I'm glad it failed, but like from that from that standpoint, like it's it's kind of if anything revealing that same double standard between French and English Canada um, that has kind of always existed. So yeah, I mean, during the during um, you know particularly tense periods of of separatist 
uh, sentiment, you would see the odd, you know, FLQ spray paint tag kind of thing. Yeah. Like there were no more manifestos. There were no more mailbox bombings. There were no more people uh, issuing statements on behalf of the FLQ. There were no more people claiming to be part of the FLQ. It, it was so decisively shut down that I don't, I don't think it retained legitimacy as a movement really. Yeah. I would have been less surprised if a completely differently named violent separatist movement had cropped up, say in the, in the mid eighties, that would have made sense to me. I'm again, glad it did not, but like that from a historical analysis point of view, that would have made that, that, that would have made a lot of sense to me for that to have, to have happened. But to do it under the FLQ name, I'm not sure is necessarily the image that they would have been going for. Yeah. I, I think it was that badly tarnished by the October crisis. You know, people will continue to and will always continue to uh, debate whether or not the War Measures Act was the right thing to do. People will continue to debate whether uh, a conquest that took place, uh, you know, 250 years ago is... Uh, enough of a reason for uh, uh, one province of a country with a different language to be considered a distinct society or not, whether they deserve their own nation or not, or their own state or not, I should say. Um, like that's stuff that we're just going to keep dealing with as as Canadians. That's that's not going to go away anytime soon. You know, I, I saw a really interesting analysis on the on the on the conquest by someone who basically described it as something that won't go away for as long as people who relate to it emotionally still exist that it's not about the conquest itself it's about how people feel about their own circumstances and as long as the conquest can be interpreted in such a way that it's beneficial to them they will use that and i don't mean to say that it's disingenuous to be of french heritage and feel wronged by by 1763 right like that's just not that that's fine i i sure that i, I get that I'm, I'm more trying to say that I don't think that the image of French Canada being oppressed by English Canada is necessarily going to be a simple fix. And, you know, uh, two failed referendums hasn't made it go away. And some attempts at constitutional change haven't made it go away. And, you know, Quebec is here to stay. There's, there's nothing we can do about that. Um, I think it makes Canada a better place than it would be without it, personally. But, um, yeah, it's going to keep us on our toes for sure. So that's the October crisis. I don't think I have anything else to add. Any final comments or any questions? Anything I, I glossed over quickly as we were rushing through that relatively short amount of time? I think the only question that I have is kind of those those five guys who kidnapped Cross and were flown to Cuba. Hmm. They all came back. Eventually. through They, they didn't stay in Cuba. Cuba kind of sucked in the yeah. 70s. I... You know, there's, they... there's a lot of romanticization of, of communist Cuba. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly come a long way over the years, but it was having a rough time. You don't necessarily want to be in a position where you rely on, like, the Soviet Union for your food supplies. Yeah. And so they left, and they most of them ended up in, in France at some point, and France didn't really want them there. And I think after a while, they decided that lifelong exile was worse than just doing some jail time and then being able to see their families again. Did any of them give interviews when oh, yeah. they came back? Yep. And what what kinds of things did they say? Um, I don't think anything you would be particularly surprised by. Yeah. They all very much believed in the cause that they were fighting for. They all believed that what they were doing was right. They 
all felt like they had gotten in over their heads once, you know, everything went to hell. They took the deal because it was, they felt the best thing for them at the time. I, I, I'm sure like it's, it's been a little bit since I watched the interviews in full. Um, I've, I've watched them a couple of times and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more nuance to them than that, but that's, that's the main thrust of what I remember from them. These people are intensely patriotic. They believe very strongly in Quebec identity and that's why they did what they did. They were trying to influence what they saw as positive change for them and the people they see as countrymen. And I think it's really easy to villainize stuff like that. And I think it's uh, also really easy to romanticize stuff like that. And you got to be really careful on both sides of that line. Well, and I think that's, I guess that's why it was interesting to me because I think it is, I mean, it does kind of, there's, I mean, at, at, at the very end of that cycle, I mean, there's no romantic part. It's like they, they got what they wanted and were flown away and then ended up, you know, being willing to come back despite having to serve jail time. It's, it, it just, it just kind of adds for me to how, you know, certain parts of this were so anticlimactic. I, I think, I think the main thing that those are, uh, interviews did for me was like very much humanize these people. Yeah. Cause they're just, just regular people. Yeah. Um, passionate, but you know, there's no, they, they're not twirling their mustaches. <laughs> they don't, you know, they don't, they don't look like Che Guevara from the, from the t-shirt. You know, yeah. that one, not like the mean one. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not, they're not Robin Hood and they're not, they're not, you know, a Bond villain. There's, there's no, there's no caricature there. And, and yeah, they believe they were doing the right thing at the time. And that's, that's hard. That's hard to build up a, a caricature against. Because once you see that interview, it becomes a lot easier to put yourself in that place and make yourself wonder what, what in my life could put me where this man is right now? I bet there's something. I yeah. bet there's something. And maybe I don't know what it is today, and I kind of hope I never do, but it could be anybody. So yeah, Canada had a domestic terror crisis. It was a pretty bad one too. And we dealt with it, and then we moved on, and then we kind of forgot about it, and that's the most Canadian thing of all. <laughs> Canada's the best, man. Yes pretty good it's pretty good i'm a big fan thank you so much for coming on the show today it's always a pleasure to have you here thanks for having me back oh anytime man you're welcome back anytime though no longer violent the question of quebec's place within canada persists to this day another referendum took place in 1995 this time coming within a few thousand votes of separation since then, the Canadian government has taken steps to ensure that such referendums are more difficult, and the Parti Québécois has removed separation from its platform as an active goal. Still, the concerns of Quebec nationalists has only moved from a political to a social one in Canada. Next time, we're going to be talking about Octavian's civil wars. That episode will be up on September 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. 
And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.